Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Well, if you'd find your place in, in Esther chapter number 8 this morning, Esther 8, as we continue our study in the book of Esther, and I, I, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, love, I love studying familiar stories and passages of the Bible and letting the Bible shape what the Bible's actually saying. And I hope that's been the outcome so far of our study of the book of Esther. When it comes to the story of Esther and the salvation of the Jews, we have seen, we've seen a wild set of events unfold over these last now 10 messages. If we could sit and watch these events, we probably would be moved by almost every every possible human emotion. A story like this seems in, seems in many ways inconceivable in our day. Seems inconceivable. But in reality, it's not that far out of the realm of possibilities. Could you imagine? Could you imagine, and it's important that we do so, could you imagine being a Jewish person in the kingdom, in this Persian kingdom dur- during this time? Uh, imagine after the edict from Haman has come out. Imagine your neighbor who was once your friend now thinking about the money he could make if he kills you and steals all that you have. Imagine the pressure of being a single Jewish young lady in this day. How about a young child, a young Jewish child who is defenseless, hears his neighbor friends who once played with them now speaking of what his parents are saying about what's going to happen to the Jewish neighbors. This kind of evil, as we, as we contemplate it, becomes very overwhelming. And we know this from history, that this won't be the last time that the Jews face hatred like this. This type of action against God's people, this type of action against God's people should not surprise us though. I don't want you to miss that. This kind of action against God's people should not surprise us. In fact, no Christian, no Christian should ever be surprised by sin. Ever. Angered? Yes. Appalled? Sure, yes. But never surprised. Never surprised. Maybe unlike any other narrative story-telling passage in the Bible, this story contrasts for us two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. These two kingdoms could not be any different. We have a kingdom that values things over people and power over life. If you juxtapose that kingdom to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God that sees image bearers, as precious in the sight of God. So precious that God sent His own Son to die for them. You see, this is the two kingdoms that we've been seeing in Esther. But last week we saw how God works through these situations to show Himself and to bring justice. To bring justice. In chapter 7, 
Esther pointed out to the king that it was Haman. It was Haman who wanted her and her people to be annihilated. The king goes out of, at that moment, he goes out to the garden only to return to Haman laying on the bed with Esther as Haman pleads for his life to the queen. The king thinks something else is going on and in that moment, Haman's got a, a bag put over his head. He's taken out to the gallows that he built for Mordecai and he is hung on those gallows. And you and I would go, yes, justice is served. Justice is served. This is it. This is what we needed. But the story is not complete. The story is not complete. As we will see today, not even Esther, not even Esther thinks her job is done. Because only a small portion of the issues has been addressed. Honestly, the Jews are still in danger of annihilation. And we need to see, we need to see what happens next. So I want you to see this morning in chapter 8, I want you to see four Four scenes of this play unfold before us. Number one, I want you to see Ahasuerus' blessing on Esther and Mordecai. Ahasuerus' blessing on Esther and Mordecai. Look with me at chapter 8 and verse number 1. As we've been doing throughout this study, we'll tell the story working our way through the passage. Verse number 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now the day of the death of Haman, the king does something very normal in the Persian world. He takes the house, not the physical house, but the all that belongs, the estate, if you will, of Haman, and he confiscates it. He then gives the whole house, the whole estate, to Esther. To Esther. Probably this is some sort of apology that the man so close to the king wanted her and her people dead. But in the meantime, Esther thinks it might be wise to finally come clean before the king. Maybe it's a good time to tell the king about her relationship to Mordecai, her cousin, her adopted father. Well, what does the king do? Well, he had not only had he confiscated all of Haman's possessions, but he had taken the ring that he had given Haman, and he had taken it before Haman was hung on the gallows, and he ends up giving that ring to Mordecai. In so doing, he makes Mordecai the second most powerful man in the empire. I mean, in our minds, this is what we needed, right? This is what this will fix everything. Mordecai is now a Jewish man who's unbelievably close to the king, along with we got a Jewish queen who's close to the king. And so Mordecai is this significantly powerful man all of a sudden. And Esther, Esther on top of that, then blesses Mordecai by placing him, by placing Mordecai over all the estate of Haman. So not only is Mordecai now the, most, uh, the second most powerful man in the, in the empire, but now he's an unbelievably wealthy man overnight. It is fair for us, now don't miss this, it is fair for us at least to recognize the kindness of the king after Esther and Mordecai had been somewhat deceptive. They had been deceptive to the king about their identity as Jews. The king is kind to them. He could have said, you've been deceiving me for five years. 
You've been dishonest with me for five years? On top of that, Esther had lived the last five years like a pagan. I've told you many times, she's not an example for us in this book. She's not somebody we really want emulate, emulated in our lives. If she had been true to her Jewish faith, maybe, just maybe, the Jews would not be at risk of being destroyed. Maybe Mordecai would have been promoted a long time ago instead of Haman. But Esther, on the advice of counsel, her adopted father, had withheld her Jewish identity. And let me just point out here that I sure am thankful that God is more powerful than the messes I am so prone to create. I'm thankful that God is more powerful than the messes I am so prone to create. Esther probably knows, though, now the predicament she and the Jewish people are in. And surely, she thinks that if something happened to her people, blood might be on her hands. And so, again, Esther realizes now that her job is not complete. She probably feels a little bit guilty about it. She's concerned, if I would have done something different, maybe this would not be the issue for, for the Jewish people. But now, Esther knows that she has to go before the king and intercede on behalf of the Jews. And so, the, Esther and Mordecai get a blessing, but there's still a problem out there. Secondly, Esther's intercession for the Jews. Esther's intercession for the Jews. Look at verse number 3. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears, to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Now regardless of what Esther should have done a long time ago, the edict to exterminate the Jews was still in effect. It was still in effect. Haman was dead and gone, but the damage he had done was not. Esther knows that her life may have been saved, her life may have been saved, but her people are not safe. Look at verse 4. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it, if, I, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters, devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are all which are in all the king's provinces, for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Here it is. Here it is that we see what Esther has asked of the king. She starts with normal, respectful pleasantries, but her question is, can the, can the edict, can the commandment that was put out by Haman, can it be reversed? The truth is, at this point, of the story, Esther is not content having her life saved by the king, but then her people be destroyed. And truthfully, at this point too, her kindred's lives are contingent, and that hangs in the balance on the king's response. So what's the king going to do? Esther has already pled once for her life, and now she comes and pleads for the life of her people. Well, number three, I want you to see Mordecai's revised commandment. Mordecai's revised commandment. Look at verse seven. Then the king answered, then, then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, 
And him they have hanged upon the gallows because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Now the average reader, the average reader thinks this response seems adequate, but it's not. What's going on here is the king basically says that he's given Esther a lot of money by giving her the house and the estate of Haman. And Haman's been hung on the gallows because he wanted to kill the Jews. And really the point of what the king says here is, what else could you guys want? Really, really the king thinks everybody is like him. Materialistic, consumed with his, himself, power hungry. And he's basically saying, what do you guys want? What more, what, why are you asking me for more? I've given you what matters. But Esther's not like the king, and Mordecai is not like this king. And the moment, listen, don't miss this, this is such a key point of the passage. The moment that Esther had identified with her people, she moved beyond her own self-interest. She moved beyond her own self-interest. As DeGuid said, I've quoted DeGuid often in the series, he said, salvation for herself was not enough. If it came without the salvation for her people. It was not enough for Esther. If it meant her people are destroyed. Clearly at some point the king realized that the answer was not sufficient. It's not enough. And so he goes on, verse number 8. He says, Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring may no man reverse. So he's speaking this in two ways. He's saying, the writing that's already gone out, I can't reverse it. Whatever you put out, I can't reverse either. Nobody can reverse it. So he basically tells them, y'all write the edict and seal it with my ring and nobody can reverse what it says. So what, what, what do they have to do? They have to write an edict that contradicts the last edict, the last commandment, to make sure that the Jews are saved. Well, surely, surely, this is not going to be complicated, right? But it's extremely complicated. And how unbelievably ridiculous, let's be honest, how unbelievably ridiculous to see this king's response in the moment. It's a response of apathy. What else do you want? And you know what? I can't change what I already put out, so you're going to have to put out something that hopefully helps you with whatever you need. Now, let me back to my business. But we're not surprised by this king because he killed Haman because the king's attack, or the Haman's attack was on the king's wife. And that's the only reason. Haman is dead because of his attack on the queen. That's it. But now Esther and Mordecai have been given the authority to put out a, an edict, a, a commandment. But it's, listen, don't miss this. That's not as easy as it sounds in an empire with 127 provinces that doesn't have email and social media. So look at verse 9. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia and hundred twenty and seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries. 
Here we're given the process, and I'm not going to get into all this, but the process of getting this commandment out to those 127 provinces that stretch from India all the way to Ethiopia. The 23rd day of the third month, the scribes come together and they write whatever Mordecai tells them to write. And then it gets translated into every language possible. It's an extensive process. It's then written in the king's name, sealed with his ring, and it was sent out with the couriers like the Pony Express. Some of y'all are old enough to remember the Pony Express. I'm not, but some, I'm just kidding. Um, horses, mules, dromedaries, camels, whatever it takes, it's got to get out. And here's what's written in this new commandment. Are you ready? Verse 11. Wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the people, all the power of the people in province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, the copy the writing for a commandment to be given in every province, was published unto all people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. Whew. Did you see what happened? The edict from Mordecai, echoes the language of what was already put out by Haman. What this edict mandated was it permitted the Jews to retaliate against those who acted on Haman's commandment. Really, they're permitted to kill those people who attacked them because of the edict from Haman. And so then, not only could they kill them, but they if somebody attacked the Jews, the Jews could attack back and could then plunder those same enemies of all their spoil and all their riches. Honestly, this is not simply self-defense. But for one day, for one day, the Jews had a license to kill. We could take some time, surely, and we could talk about the morality of this. But the word used in verse 13, chapter 8, is the word avenge which speaks of a retribution for a prior offense. Simply put, those who tried to destroy the Jews because of Haman would now share in Haman's fate. But what is really probably most incredible about this is the Persian army is not going to do anything to defend the Jews. Not a thing to defend the Jews. The Jews had been given the authority to enact a holy war against their enemies. That's what this edict permitted. They have the authority to act out in holy war against anybody who attacked them. For one day. One day. I want you to see what happens after this. Look at verse 4. From this point on, there's incredible popularity for the Jews. Look at verse 15. And then we're going to dive into some application which we've done and provided throughout this study. Look at verse 15. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. Now here it is that we see one of the many reversals in the book of Esther. Not only did the edict go out from Shushan, but Mordecai went out from the king's presence and he did so in all the visible splendor of the Persian empire as only he could as second in command. 
Another reversal is that when Haman's edict went out of Shushan, the whole city was thrown back by it. Remember chapter 3, verse 15? But the city of Shushan was perplexed. That was after the first edict. Now verse 15 says, And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Not only was that a reversal, but in chapter 4, the Jews responded to Haman's edict. Verse 3, there was great mourning among the Jews in fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. That was the response to the first commandment. But now the response to the second commandment is given in verse 16 that says, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a good day. And a good day. Joy, gladness, and a good day. I guess that makes perfect sense when your life that was once in jeopardy has now possibly been spared, right? It'd be a good day for you too. And any day with joy, gladness, and a feast is a really good day. But the biggest response of this probably comes from the non-Jews in the empire. Notice their response in verse 17. And many of the people of the land became Jews. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now listen very carefully to this. This is unbelievably ironic. Now maybe, maybe some of the people had converted to Judaism. Maybe. But it seems that the majority of them, after seeing the demise of Haman and the rise of Mordecai and now this understanding that our queen is Jewish have become fearful of the Jews more than they are converting to Judaism. Truly, the empire was not any different in chapter 8 of Esther as it was in chapter 1 of Esther. The, the kingdom is not much different, but the Jews' outlook had changed because their lives were spared. They had fellow Jews in power. But Mordecai surely knew that his position could change quickly as it did for Haman. And Esther surely knew that her position could change as it did for Vashti. But the Jews were celebrating and the non-Jews were afraid to be against the Jews. We can think and surmise that maybe the Jews' celebration was God-centered, but as is true to form in Esther... God is not even spoken of in this celebration. But we know that it was God who, although behind the scenes when God is missing, seems to be missing, God continued to push His story through His people, and God's story cannot be stopped. And God deserved the praise. So, that's the story of chapter 8. I've given you the story without any application, really. Let me provide for you some. There's three statements today that I think we can make, at least make three, and we could make many more. I'd like to give you these three application statements, and maybe another week we'll analyze some of the legitimate and fair questions that come out of chapter 8. But let me, let me work backwards in the passage with my applications. Number one, number one. Celebration is to be normative in the life of the people our God saves. 
Let me say that again. Stay with me. Celebration is to be normative in the life of the people our God saves. In Esther 8, the people who had experienced the escape from death gave themselves to glad and joyful celebration. Their lives that had mattered absolutely were saved from physical death. The Christian who has been saved from eternal death and damnation, who has had a commandment of death written over them, should have part of their normal weekly rhythm of life, the weekly rhythm of life to celebrate their salvation with God's people. It is to be normative in our life to celebrate God's salvation with God's people. Yes, yes, this can happen by yourself. Yes, this can happen in your daily devotions. Yes, it can happen in your car, for that matter. But it has been God's ordained means since the resurrection for the church of Jesus Christ to gather together in worship, joy-filled celebration, and a glad response to the work of Christ. The Lord's Day is our weekly time to corporately celebrate the escaping of God's judgment that was written over us. The Lord's Day is our weekly time to celebrate as a church body Jesus defeating death so that death, which is the last enemy, cannot defeat us. See, friends, this is the importance of the gathering of the church. And hear me, you go, Pastor, I know I'm here today. I came for this worship service. I came to hear the word of God open. The question is, did you come ready to celebrate the goodness of our saving God on our life? This is the pinnacle of our week. We open the word of God to respond to the work of Christ. We invest our lives into one another because Christ has given himself for us. And so our whole being as Christians, our whole being is thrown into the grace-infused, Jesus-saturated, gospel-dominated life of the body of Christ. What is that? That's glad and joyful celebration that we have been saved. That we have been saved. If they celebrated all around the Persian Empire... We should be people who can give ourselves to passionate worship and praise and the celebration for the finished work of the cross. Listen carefully. Sunday is not to be. Sunday is not a day to be with God's people if we can make it happen. Let me say it again. Sunday is not a day to be with God's people if we can make it happen. Being with God's people should be the normative life of the Christian. It should be normal. It should not be the exception. It should not be the exception. As I said a few weeks ago, our families, our children, our spouses, ourselves should wake up every Sunday not questioning whether we're going to gather with God's people. My kids ought to know it's Sunday. We're going to church. We're going to go to the celebration of the body of Christ because we have been saved. Number two. Number two. This is important. God's counter decree to death is life. 
God's counter decree to death is life. What do I mean by that? In this chapter, there was clearly an issue, and it was a decree of death. A decree of death. It was written over the Jewish people by Haman. The only response to that was to issue a counter decree. And this decree was so that the Jews could live. You could ask, well, couldn't the king just rescind the first decree? And the answer is no. The first decree could not be rescinded, so there was no stopping it. So what had to happen? There had to be a counter decree to the decree of death. Now, the theological point that is being made in this instance is ultimately about human destiny. Just, because, just as the Persian king could not rescind the decree of death, listen, God, the king of the universe cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the garden against humanity. Death will come to all. That decree cannot be rescinded. Here's the good news. What God does do in the garden is He provides the counter decree. And the counter decree to death is life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God does not rescind the decree of death. You say, well, couldn't God do that? Not in his justice and not in his holiness. He could not rescind the first decree. You say, well, that's not a loving God. Oh, it's a very loving God. Because he doesn't leave you to figure it out on your own. He says, I'm going to give you a counter decree that gives you life. Here's a picture of the counter decree and a very familiar, the decree and the counter decree in a very familiar passage in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, here's the decree. For the wages of sin is death written over all of us. Written over all of us. That's the decree. But the passage doesn't stop there. God gives you the counter decree which says in verse 23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the decree of death is defeated by the decree of life. And so what is promised to all those who are under the first decree is simply, simply, not that you have to fight for your life, it's actually that Jesus already fought for your life. You don't have to defend your life, spiritually speaking. You have no defense. It's that Jesus Christ came and the only one who could trump the first decree did so. And so what is promised is all who place their faith in the finished work of Christ as your only hope for salvation. You no longer, you can no longer be under the decree of death. Because of your faith in Christ, you can now be under the second decree, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you've never come to Christ in faith, the reality of your condition is you're still under the first decree. But the beauty of the Christian message is Jesus Christ has provided a counter decree. You don't have to be under the first. You get to be under the second if you place your faith in him. Let me give you a third statement here. I think one of the most important points to be made in this passage. Number three, saved people are to intercede on behalf of those who are perishing. Saved people are to, be, are to intercede on behalf of those who are perishing. Could you imagine if Esther had gone back to her palace suite, back to her manis and petties, back to her spa bath, back to her fine wine, and back to her food, and, and let her people deal with the punishment that was coming? Could you imagine? But she doesn't. She doesn't. 
Esther grasps something that is very urgent to us as believers today. Hear me very carefully. How can, I be cons- how can it be considered okay that I have been saved from death, from the first decree, but I am unwilling to intercede for those who are still under the condemnation of sin? How? How is it okay for me to be saved, for me to be safe, but to never care about the unsaved person around me? Can I justify that? How do I, how do I respond to the good news of the salvation for my sins? How do I respond? I'm concerned for many of us that we respond in the way that the king thought Esther would. Remember that? What more do you want, Esther? Just move on with your life. You've been saved. You've been blessed with wealth. You've been blessed with with living in the palace. What else do you want? Move on with your life. And the question for us is, knowing that our eternity is secured, have we gone back? Have we gone back to focusing on us, on our careers, on our families, on our money, on our lives in this country? Have we gone back to that? Tim Kaine said, having been saved, have we returned to pursuing our own comfort and pleasure while the people all around us are still living under the threat of God's eternal judgment? Have we? Are we numb to it? Are we so persuaded by everything around us? And honestly, are we content as Christians to know that there is a world dying and that we'll go to hell? Are we content as long as As we have what we need? Friends, that is not the response to the gospel. The Apostle Paul shows us that it was not enough that he had salvation. He wanted all Jews to come to Christ. Remember Romans 9? He said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that I, that myself were accursed from Christ for my Brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Remember chapter 10, the very famous verse, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul was not okay to see his people destroyed by their sins. The gospel of Christ motivates and enables us to intercede for the lost. For the lost. Why? We've been saved from death and hell because Jesus, Jesus pled to the Father on our behalf. You and I as Christians should now be people who plead with God for others to be saved. I want to ask you a practical question. When was the last time you prayed for an unbeliever to be saved? When was the last time you told an unbeliever how they could be saved? When was the last time you invited an unbeliever to come hear the gospel? When was the last time that you gave in an offering like today and you prayed that somebody would come to Christ from that penny, from that dollar, from that gift? When? I'm afraid that we have sung songs like, as we did, which are great, 
He will hold me fast without caring about whether the person next to us at work will ever be held by Jesus. When was the last time? See, saved people intercede for perishing people. And the good news will only be good if it gets to people on time. It'll only be good if it gets to people on time. My encouragement today is simple. Not shame. It's encouragement. To look at the gospel and celebrate. Point number one, celebrate. But take your celebration to another person. Invite them to come to the celebration as well. Invite them. Pray for the lost. On our prayer sheet that I mentioned is on our website. There's a list of people that people in our church have asked our church to pray for. Who on that list are you praying for? How about the missionaries on our list? We call them our global partners. Those that are, we didn't just send them. Our prayers and our money go with them. Have you prayed for them? Who have you invited? Who have you invited to come hear the gospel? Saved people must intercede for those who are perishing, as Esther did for her people. The gospel of Christ is the good news that if you are under the decree of death, you're not only going to die once physically, but there will be a spiritual death, and that death will be in a place called hell. That a holy God must punish sin. The good news is if you don't know Christ as Savior, Jesus offers you life, eternal life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, if you're watching online and you don't know Christ as Savior, we love to tell you how you can be saved. We love to invite you to the celebration. It happens every Sunday here physically, but it's going to happen in eternity too for those who place their faith in Jesus. To our church family, listen, let's Take the gospel to the world. To the world. To every person. To every nation. To every tribe. Tongue. Let's pray for that end. Let's give to that end. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.